Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Mark Hopkins. He is a futurist and writer. This is Technotopia. Hey, Technotopia listeners, have I got a story for you. Let's go back to 2014. Two researchers are tinkering with the design for a security robot that will patrol your house and guard your stuff when you're not around. But there was a problem. It wasn't all that much the robot could do to stop an intruder. So rather than simply halt development, the two researchers decided to pivot. And by doing so, they realized they had a device that would create a whole new category in robotics. That story is a sneak peek into the robotics episode of a podcast I just started listening to and I love. It's called Trailblazers from Dell Technologies. This podcast is so good. It's hosted by best-selling author Walter Isaacson, and Isaacson has been one of my favorite authors and thinkers, and he's been writing about technology for decades. In his new podcast, he explores stories of disruption peppered in with insights and lessons from trailblazing guests. To listen to it, I want you to search Trailblazers on your favorite podcast app or stream it on DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. That's DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Mark Hopkins. He's a futurist and uh, you're a VC and you're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right, Mark? Yeah, I just kind of go wherever I get interested in going uh, these days, which is, is a fun place to be at. How does that, how does that work? Do you just like show up to places? Are you like a Zelig kind of situation where people just <laughs> give you, give you cool titles? Uh, not, I mean, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I was a journalist for a ton of years and I talked about things that I thought were interesting. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I mean, most of it was about blockchain. And, and so a couple of years ago, the rest of the world started thinking blockchain was interesting. And so I just got to get all kinds of crazy invitations to do stuff now. Mm-hmm. All right. Very cool. All right. Um, so, I mean, we've, the past couple of shows have been about blockchain specifically. What are, what are you, what's your take on, on what's happening now and what's going to happen in the next 10 years? I know that's a, I know that's a big question, but. Yeah, that's, that's pretty huge. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I, I'm one of those guys that drank the Kool-Aid really early okay. on. Uh, I, I, uh, I've, I was in it for, I mean, I've, I've gone through like all the stages at all these other uh, any anybody that gets the blockchain and really loves it goes through where it's first maybe it's about the money or it's about like one specific project and then you know they start getting their eyes open about hey maybe this could be a disruptive technology that changes the world and uh and now i i actually was gonna take a break for a bit and write a book because i, I believe so much about like how you could reshape society with blockchain i was gonna like do one of these ray kurzweil books where i predict the next 10 years and every time I'd finish a chapter, I'd look up and it'd be an article that you or somebody else wrote and go, oh, wait, that just <laughs> happened. So I, I kind of got back into getting my hands dirty and, you know, getting involved with projects. So now a lot of my writing ends up being in people's white papers and stuff like that as opposed to a book. But I think uh, my imagination, to answer your question, is not big enough to say exactly what it's going to be in 10 years. Because like what I was thinking was five years out or 10 years out happened like a week later mm -hmm. um it's just just the pace of change in some respects is is amazing and not just in blockchain but also in cognitive and just in time delivery and uh you know just i i think in general we're headed towards a post-scarcity world it's just we're not gonna know that until we get there 
And whether that means it's either going to be Star Trek or Wally, you know, that just depends if you're an optimist or a pessimist, I suppose. But mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be like one of those, <laughs> or maybe somewhere in between. What is what does post scarcity mean in this context? What is that? What does it give us if we're post scarcity? Well, in this context, it gives. I think. Uh, I, I I think about it in terms of meaning more individual liberty or freedom for the individual, like just for 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 people that are, uh, you know, bound to work. Right. You know, uh, a lot of us, when we grew up, if we came from a privileged background, we're told we could be anything, we could do anything, just go to college and, you know, live your dreams. And uh, many of us uh, uh, that weren't as privileged didn't have those opportunities. And I think post-scarcity means in a lot of ways that uh, it elevates the rest of humanity to the level of privilege that, uh, you know, the upper crust uh, of, you know, the first world uh, has and, and, and has today. That's an interesting point. So I was, uh, I was talking with a buddy. He was, uh, he was out with a boy scout troop in, up in Michigan, uh, and a lot of Republicans out there hanging out, a lot of Trump supporters. Uh, but he mm. said it's more, it's less about, it's less about a political beliefs. It's more about a lifestyle. The idea that you want a similar lifestyle that you experienced on the, I don't know, the leafy streets of, um, Grand Rapids. Uh, mm -hmm. riding your bike and, and doing all this stuff, and you want the same thing for your kids. So you're saying that almost everybody could have that cafes, croissants, good public school down the street, if not a Catholic school uh, kind mm -hmm. of situation. Is that the expectation here? That's, I mean, that's the hope, right? I mean, every utopia is somebody else's dystopia, so it's not going to be perfect uh, for everybody. Um, but, I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, I think that eventually we'll get there because I, I am an optimist and, you know, intelligent people disagree with me, but uh, that's where my brain's at. Mm -hmm. What does it take not to, uh, not to fall into despair uh, in, a, in situations like this? How do you maintain optimism uh, when we see weird stuff happening? Um, well, uh, and this, this actually kind of goes to me contradicting 10, year, 10 years ago me. Um, the, the, the number one thing I've done for my mental health is I logged off of Facebook and I mitigate the amount of time I do on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult to do as someone who's a former journalist who likes to drink from the fire hose. But uh, what uh, monolithic centralized data consumption platforms have turned into is not healthy for the human brain. I've come to realize, I mean, this is like, I'm only like two, three months into this experiment, mm -hmm. and it's, but it's transformed my mental health. I'm able to be far more productive. I don't get depressed. I don't get sucked into these. You know, a buddy of mine um, I've worked with for years says that uh, Twitter is a great platform for making you like people you haven't met yet. And Facebook is a great platform for making you hate people you already know. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I got tired of, of hating my friends for like really stupid, but, you know, you know, not very nice political beliefs. Mm -hmm. right? I mean. At the end of the day, I mean, I'll, I'll break bread with a lot of these people and we'll have a great discussion and I'll never touch on politics and we agree on 90% of life. But then there's that one political belief that's, you know, they're, they're a MAGA guy or, you know, they believe something strange about, you know, ultra progressive that, that's outside of the step of, 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 of the norm and you get caught up in these dumb arguments about them. Um, or, you know, they hate the fact that you're, you know, you're a crypto 
blockchain person so like how can you believe in something that's going to destroy mm-hmm. whatever you know these you know these weird arguments they happen all the time and they're not necessary um because ultimately nobody's brain is going to get flipped to a new position uh from those arguments so why are why are we having them why why are we forcing ourselves to have these conversations um it's important to be up to date on the news and i've gone back to uh you know, basically my old ways of, of consuming data, I, I have, I use Feedly and have OPML files. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to force myself into more decentralization uh, on a personal level when it comes to news consumption. Interesting. So, so you've actually gone back to what everybody used to do. Everybody used to have your feed, you used to have your feed, uh, whatchamacallit, your feed reader, and you just mm-hmm. go through, like, I mean, I have my tabs that I open every morning. I got about, I got about 20 of them. And I get most of the stuff that I need to know out of that out of those tabs. Um, what happened over the past couple years that that forced us to go to Facebook for that information? Is it just because it's easier, or is it just because it's because uh, it's there? I mean, I think this is, and and I'm hoping I'm just not echoing. 10 year old Mark or mm-hmm. 10 years ago, Mark, because I thought that social was going to be this great. I mean, I was, I, I ran with like the Dave Weiner, you know, Adam sure. Curry, John Furrier crowd where I thought like, Hey, you know, this is, this is going to be the, the thing that changes the world and makes media more democratized and to an extent. And for a little bit, it did. Um, but the internet wasn't decentralized enough and there was no incentives for things to stay decentralized the incentive was just like it has been throughout all of humanity for kind of power to coalesce and so that's what it did you know um and twitter is a monolithic platform and facebook is a monolithic platform and because we were in this uh era of thinking like like egalitarian Mm -hmm. and like okay the, the news must be free to disrupt the, you know, the big stodgy New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times people, uh, then, you know, the only way to monetize it was by selling the audience in a, in a way that what didn't really have their best interest in heart. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what I, and, and then, you know, a lot of people even initially pushed back. I mean, you and I covered the, a lot of the same trends, uh, about, and, you know, like the Matt Ingram stories, you know, where he would talk about like all oh, micropayments could take over, and there was a ton of really great experiments during the Web 2.0 era about mm-hmm. micropayments. But I mean, it all came down to an antiquated financial system that couldn't handle payments of you know fifty cents or less without costing another fifty cents to handle it. Right? Um, PayPal's really not, still not great at handling super small transactions. It's really great at like a dollar fifty to you know mm-hmm. maybe a thousand dollars, but anything below dollar fifty. It's not a super great platform for that until blockchain came along and you can handle, you know, fractions of a penny uh, on certain blockchains and uh, do all kinds of micropayments instantly. Uh, we, we had a, uh, an early experiment in, in one of my companies that was uh, we were creating a content production company mm-hmm. and we could actually meter uh, the, the, you know, writers. We've always metered uh, in, in newsrooms that I've run. Writers get paid by the word. Okay. And you, you get a word cap and it incentivizes them to be pithy and that sort of thing. Um, and whenever we launched this, uh, this, mo- uh, this mode of uh, writing as a content firm, we le- allowed people to get paid in Bitcoin and payable by the word. So the minute that an editor approved their words, they could have an instant transaction of, you know, 
$17 or $125 and change or whatever. Uh, but that's that same thing is available, you know, on the other side of the equation. Once we get there, you see it with Steemit, you see it with library projects like that, where content creators can get paid the moment something is consumed with, you know, a fraction of a penny taken out as opposed to some giant percentage or a, a base fee of, you know, a dollar or two. So I, this is this is actually fascinating stuff, and this is stuff I'm really excited about. Uh, but it just hasn't it just hasn't taken hold. What's what's stopping it from taking hold? Why can't I pay uh, per click on New York Times website? Why do you think that is? Well, we're still in the science experiment phase of this, uh, and this all comes in waves. I think we're probably hitting the end of the like the third wave of blockchain science experiments. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at like you know Bitcoin being the first wave, and along with Bitcoin was kind of like uh, uh, Namecoin and Devcoin that established some of the models, but it was still very 1.0. And then like the second wave would have been kind of Ethereum mm-hmm. uh, and other Turing complete blockchains. And now we're in a third wave of stuff being built on top of that and stuff that are competing with those second wave uh, projects. Um, it, I think we'll probably have if if the unless the cycles start compressing, which is certainly possible, uh, you know, given the iterative nature of, of technology and Moore's law and things like that, uh, we probably are another like four years, three or four years away from mainstream adoption uh, of these types of technologies from mainstream companies because you know it's the innovators dilemma; they got a lot to lose. And what I mean, it's the same reason why the New York Times. Uh, didn't switch to e-delivery until way, way, way late. Like if you, uh, Sean Piani and I did a story at Mashable uh, right whenever, remember uh, Esquire came out with that e-ink cover? And it was, yeah. So we did like a breakdown of that thing and talked about like what was going on with the innards. And then we did a couple of video podcasts back then uh, talking about the revenue models and the business models. And we did the numbers based upon uh, what e-ink was selling for at the time. And if uh, the New York Times had bought every one of their subscribers a top of the line like Kindle at the time, it was like 300 bucks, and just delivered their, the New York Times on that uh, instead of delivering a daily paper, they would have saved like 40% over existing delivery model. Um, but it was just too experimental at the time. Like it, it, there were so many clear advantages that we now know would probably have saved a lot of what they're trying to do uh, in the past. Um, it's that innovator's dilemma. We know delivering a piece of paper is going to work at least, you know, for the next, you know, 10 years or five years. So we're not going to screw that up um, just for this thing that may disrupt ourselves and may change everything and make it better, or it could make it 10 times worse. Uh, and if you look at what Steam it is, like Steam it, is probably like the top of the line, like micropayments publishing platform has some real issues. I mean, look at the quality of it. It's not media. Um, it's, it's enabling a lot of cool things, uh, but people aren't making a living on it unless they're doing kind of exorbitant ICO pump and dump type blog posts, which is not ideal. There's still a lot of tweaking to happen there. So what's going to happen uh... Is it the institutional folks? Is it New York Times, Wall Street Journal who who bear the uh, fruits of all this uh, technology, or is it uh, blogs and up and coming techno uh, up and coming media organizations? What 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 happens to these uh, these old industrial style 
media farms? Um, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, and it's one I think about a lot and I don't know that I have the answer right now because it's one of those things where, uh, like the domino could tip in one about five or six different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what's more likely is you're going to see, uh, like a middle of the pack, uh, uh, entertainment based news organization, like something that, you know, they, they, they kind of made their, like a, like Buzzfeed did, you know, they, they kind of, you know, threw away, threw away the, uh, the, the, all the entrenched ideas when, mm-hmm. when they kind of, I mean, they, they built a little bit on the old and a little bit on the new, but they said, okay, we're going to monetize a completely different way. And we're going to do one type of content for, you know, the first few years. And it worked really well for them. It's probably going to be an organization like that, that shows that it can be done and still create quality journalism. Uh, and then, you know, just like what happened with BuzzFeed, just like what happened at TechCrunch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Mike showed the world uh, that it could be done. Ohm showed the world that it could be done and you could create quality content. And then, okay, then everybody's it's like starts marching in that direction. And it'll probably be like the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post that is last to that party, but they'll eventually come. Were we right in our goal to uh, destroy uh, old media? Uh, and I, and I, I say this as, as you and I, as, as early bloggers, as me running Gizmodo early on and basically just hosing PC Magazine and, uh, and a lot of other <laughs> titles. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, uh, Computer Shopper was one of my favorite magazines back in the, <laughs> back in the 90s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And then we basically turned it into a pamphlet. It, were we right in doing that? Uh, you know, I ask myself that all the time. Um, because, I mean, if you, if you shorten the narrative too much, you get, uh, you know, the New York Times messed up on a bunch of stories that a bunch of uh, neckbeards got on their computers and started blogging, and now we've got President Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Which, if you, too short, makes us sound like monsters. Um, but I do believe that number one, it was probably inevitable, um, uh, because you just can't have the internet, uh, as, as a, as a distribution tool and not have media end up going there. So if it wasn't us, it was going to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think, um, if I, if I could go back in a time machine and kill Hitler on this one, I would probably say to, uh, all of us as we were doing that is let's pay closer attention to what people like Dave Weiner is saying, mm-hmm. right? Decentralization matters. Um, and that's the, he has never come off message on that. Um, you know, decentralization matters. Uh, RSS is a great fundamental technology. Um, we should have pushed back more against like the Facebooks uh, mm-hmm. and the Googles when they said like, you know, it's not that important. You know, we can just build an API. It's basically the same thing. No, mm-hmm. it's not. It's really not. So we yeah. should have, uh, we should have, we should have. So it seems, it seems what you're saying is we were, we were open source sellouts, and I, and I think this is, I think this is true. I've written about this before. We were all, our, our generation, I guess you could say, the, 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 the end, the tail end of Gen X was all about user generated content. We were making zines, we were making, we had BBSs, making mixtapes, all the remix kind of stuff. It's all about user generated content, and, and we saw that as the gold standard for media. Uh, that's that's what I would argue uh, with the with like the Gawker blogs and all the other stuff. 
what Jason Calacanis did is he dumped out 50 blogs that were making, that were talking about loss, that were talking about all, all the, you know, these other topics. And he basically, he basically drowned out all other conversation, especially on the formal media. So we created this user-generated content, and then ultimately somebody came along and put our zines in like a, in like a glossy magazine and tried to sell it, and that's exactly what Facebook is now, which is, which is kind of frustrating because, I mean, if we're, if we're true to ourselves on that front, and I don't think we have to be, uh, if we're true to ourselves on that front, then we've essentially given up the keys to our user-generated kingdom, and we've actually ruined a lot of stuff uh, by doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but look at the revenue model that you've created with, with, with some of your, your, your media efforts these days. I mean, that's, that's really what the ideal scenario is, um, for, you know, that future, you know, the one that didn't get disrupted by Twitter and Facebook and the mm -hmm. social networks is where, you know, some of your content is free. You know, if it ages a little bit, it becomes free. And if you want it uh, fast, you have to pay for it. And you're, multi-platform i mean this was this was kind of the, the the what we what john furrier and i did and and dave Vellante at silicon angle mm -hmm. is we, we we took a pledge very early on because for some stupid reason john and i thought okay let's, let's launch a blog in 2009 you know <laughs> um, and that's going to be a working <laughs> but we took a minute you know we, as soon as we started signing up for the display ad networks we're like oh wait we can't pay our rent with these unless we have 10 million viewers so we said it was an easy pledge to make. We're never going to run a display ad on the site. Mm -hmm. We're just going to use every other monetization model. And that really works. Like it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I went without a few meals for a couple of years in the first couple of years of Silicon Angle. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was scrimping and saving, but I mean, they were like a six to $10 million a year company when I left them. Nice. So, uh, and you know, it's, you can do that with underwriting. Um, and that's industry news, but you could also do that with straight journalism. You could do that with like civic journalism because everyone has a vested interest in topics being covered. I mean, uh, PBS has been around, uh, you know, for years and years and for the last like 20 has subsisted mostly off of underwriting from the private, uh, private sector, not the public sector. So it's a model that works. It's just that, uh, you know, it's not conventional wisdom, so a lot of people don't go for it. All right, so there is a future, and it's not a horrible one. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's <laughs> good. That's good to know. All right, Mark. This is uh, this is fascinating because I feel like uh, I feel like I can talk to you about some of the uh, some of the horrible experiences that I had over the past uh, past. Gosh, it's been like twenty years now that I've been blogging, which is nuts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's. It's a, it's a, it's like we went through the uh, same war together, huh? Yeah, exactly. I asked Joel Johnson once, uh, the guy who hired me over at uh, at Gizmodo, and I was like, did you do you go into therapy because of the blogging? He was like, yeah, absolutely. It's just it was a, it was, it was tough on the brain, uh, but at least I can write twenty eight posts a day if I need to. That's uh, that's a real, it's a good skill. Hundred percent. No, no, I legitimately went through therapy. Uh, because of blogging, I uh, uh, took a toll on my marriage, and we had literally had to go to marriage therapy wow. uh, for a minute. To, you know, because I was spending too much time doing stuff rather than paying attention to life. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, there you have it. That's uh, <laughs> the answer to sadness is to stop stop using the computer so much. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, thank you for joining us on Technotopia. This is uh, this has been a really cool conversation. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. 
Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Technotopia is presented by your host, John Biggs. It was produced by Rick Barr of Bar26 Entertainment at ricksvoice.com. It appears every Friday at noon, and we're always looking to talk to interesting people. Tweet at John Biggs if you'd like to join us on the show. 